This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, Tuesday, December 13th, 2022, just after 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5.30 in Newfoundland and Labrador, 1 o'clock in British Columbia. And I'll let you sort out all of the times in between there if time zone bingo is your bag. It's great to have you aboard the program today as we near the holiday season. I mean, I guess we're already in the holiday season, but we near like the very thick of the holiday season, which I don't think is too insensitive to point out, although it is less than two weeks until Christmas. So uh, some of you may be listening in your uh, ear pods or your car as you go about your day with the Christmas shopping. I hope it's going well and you are surviving the mall chaos, which I had to endure just the other day. I went into a mall, which I don't think I had done since perhaps last year probably around this time last year. Yeah, because I don't even think I returned anything and I certainly didn't do any Boxing Day shopping. So it was probably like exactly a year ago that I did my last foray into the mall and I found it so unpleasant I didn't do it until uh, just the other day. But I survived. I got through and I made it through the line to see Santa Claus. I sat on his lap and unfortunately he is in for a five-year wait for knee surgery in the province of Ontario. But you know what? We got a good photo out of it. So uh, I don't know. Why am I talking about Santa Claus his knee. There are big things happening here. The muscification of Twitter continues. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. Also, a little bit about the Mississauga Lakeshore by-election last night. But before you hit the snooze button, I am uh, assuring you that it is not, in fact, the case that the sky is falling, which is what the mainstream media would like you to believe as far as Pierre Polyev's leadership fortunes. And also payroll taxes. As a new year is upon us, they're going to be getting a little bit worse. But the Canadian Federation of Independent Business is calling for a freeze on that, which they say would save uh, Canadians about $300 a year. So we'll talk about that with Dan Kelly of the CFIB in uh, just about, I think, 10 minutes or so, Dan will be on. But let's start to, uh, start off by talking about the muscification of Twitter, which is about the only verb I can think of to describe it here. And a thought that came across my mind as I was scrolling through my timeline, and I'm following Elon Musk, which all of you should if you're Twitter users, because you tend to get a sense of what's happening on the platform long before the mainstream media eventually writes a story based on what Elon Musk has tweeted. So you can get it from the source directly, and I'm kind of of the mind that Donald Trump has now passed the torch, at least in theory, to Elon Musk as far as being the guy on Twitter that you have to follow because he's the one whose tweets everyone is talking about or soon will. 
But Elon Musk has done something tremendous here. He has been a disruptor on a platform that very much had succumbed to that big tech Silicon Valley groupthink that we see from Facebook and that we see from Google or Alphabet, as it's now called. And he has gotten in there and not only has he taken over this platform and given it a very free speech focused mandate, But he has decided that he is going to be unafraid of holding up a mirror and showcasing exactly what it was that happened behind the scenes to make Twitter what it was up until the point at which he took it over. And there have been some tremendous dumps of documents here that Elon Musk has orchestrated through a number of independent-minded journalists such as Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger. And I don't know, Michael Schellenberger, I don't know if I'd call him a journalist, but certainly a, a prolific Twitter user and influencer, as much as I hate that term. And these documents show us a lot of what we've kind of known was happening But they give us more in the sense of a concrete roadmap of what happened as far as the shadow banning of conservative accounts, the banning of Donald Trump's Twitter account, the suppression of conservative thought online, and all of these things which, again, people sort of suspected were happening, but we didn't have the receipts, as they say. But the Twitter files have given us those receipts. And the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story, by the way, which again, we've absolutely known was a big part of what Twitter was doing to try to help the Democrats effectively. But we now know exactly what went on behind that. And and there were some small unnamed forces behind the scenes that were pushing back against some of this, but by and large, people fell in line. And the banning of Donald Trump, very same idea. Some people said, well, hang on, I'm not exactly convinced about that. One person in the documents published by Barry Weiss was saying, yeah, you know what, I come from China, so censorship is not exactly something that I would enter into lightly. And the Twitter safety team, or whatever it's called, did an assessment of Donald Trump's tweets and found there was actually no violation, or vios as they call them, of their safety policies. But Twitter decided after employees were pushing for it because they were triggered and Donald Trump violated their safe space that they should ban Donald Trump in general. And this was something that Twitter did in spite of an internal finding that Donald Trump hadn't broken the Twitter rules. And dictators from other countries, Ayatollah Khomeini, their Twitter accounts all stayed. Donald Trump was the one that got permanently suspended on Twitter. And it was only after Elon Musk took over the company that Donald Trump was unsuspended or unbanned, although he has not tweeted since that happened. He's preferring to communicate on Truth Social, which is the uh, platform that he himself has started. Now, I would like to see him come back to Twitter just for the entertainment value alone and to kind of just push like the last vestiges of the annoying triggered set off of Twitter because they won't really be able to tolerate him being there all that well. But I want to talk about this in a Canadian context here because we have not seen any Canadian analog to the Twitter files just yet. And to be fair, we haven't seen any big picture bans or suspensions apart from some of the ones that we've already gotten some information about, like the feminist writer Megan Murphy, who has now been unbanned from Twitter as part of the muskification thereof. But a lot of Canadian conservative accounts, I suspect, were also victims of this very same dynamic that was going after American accounts. And Twitter 
infamously said that shadow banning does not exist. It was, I think, two years ago, maybe three years ago. They said, a lot of people are talking about shadow banning. We do not do it. Well, we saw on Twitter evidence of the opposite. We saw accounts that were tagged and we saw the screenshots of this with do not amplify or exclude from searches or all of these other terms that show Twitter was making very deliberate decisions to limit the exposure of some accounts. And curiously, these all tended to be conservative accounts. Dan Bongino was one, Charlie Kirk was another, and so on. So it wouldn't surprise me to know that I might have been on that list or Candace Malcolm might have been on that list, True North, Ezra Levant, a number of these people. And I, as long as I know that it's not happening, I don't really care about what happened in the past. And I think this is where people need to get very nervous about which levers of power about our online identities we have given to people in a room in California that have an agenda that I think has been made abundantly clear right now. And this was always the issue, because I, I know some of you have been very annoyed by this, but I've always taken a very deliberately libertarian view on big tech. I don't think it's the role of government to ensure that we have the constitutional right to free speech on Twitter or Facebook. I think these are private companies. I think people decide to use them. And I think the companies have an obligation to, I think the companies have a moral obligation to be platforms for free speech, but not a legal obligation. But at the very least, I think it's important that they be honest about what it is that they're doing. And these companies are making billions of dollars off of user-generated content, but they're the ones deciding which content they think should be seen and which content shouldn't be seen. And the implications of this are vast, especially when you're talking about democracy. They can decide which posts by politicians get amplified, which politician doesn't have a right to use the platform. And even if you think this is, as I do, legally sound, you can think it is morally despicable. And I think that we all need to start talking about the moral value of free speech because a society filled with people that don't fundamentally respect free speech is far worse in my view, or in a different sense, bad, than a society in which the government doesn't recognize free speech. Because if you have people that are yearning to be free and yearning to speak freely, there's at least a force that will go up against the government. A society in which people don't actually care about that freedom, government doesn't need to censor because we all just censor ourselves and censor each other before the government needs to get its hands dirty. And this brings me to the challenges that we have right now in Canada. And Elon Musk is someone that perhaps doesn't care about Canadian public policy. I know he used to be engaged to a Canadian singer, Grimes. He has a, a child that is therefore Canadian. I think he spent like five minutes at Queen's University, uh, but he's not a Canadian. So he may not actually care about Canada. Canada represents a very small subset of Twitter's market because it is a country that is very small in the world. Although his mother is Canadian, I, I should point out. I don't know if he has Canadian citizenship though. I don't think he does, but uh, he may uh, just as a matter of interest care about Canada, and I think he should, because Canada is a country that is at least sharing the continent with him. It is integrated with the United States and can decide to make itself uh, an enemy of social media and social media free speech, which I think is going to be the case. And one of the reasons this is so important is because the Trudeau government has been putting forward over the last couple of years a package, a whole suite of bills that take aim at online free speech. 
The one that everyone talks about is Bill C-11, which is the infamous internet regulation bill that takes the CRTC approach to regulating TV and radio and vastly expands it to the purview of online content. And this bill is bad, and I, I've been tooth and nail fighting against it. A lot of people have. But there are other bills as well that the Liberals are putting forward that have gone under the radar. One of them is, I think it's C-18, which is the bill that the government will use to force social media companies to pay news companies for the privilege of letting those news companies uh, publish their content on social media. It's a very convoluted bill. So the Toronto Star voluntarily gets a Facebook page and a YouTube page and posts links to their stuff on there. And the government thinks that Facebook should have to pay the Toronto Star for letting them use it to promote themselves. And the rationale of this is that Facebook is making money off of Canadian news, so they should have to pay it back. And it's it's a stupid bill. It's what Australia tried to do, and Facebook had to acknowledge the fact that, listen, news content is a very insignificant part of what we do. All of our users care more about cat gifs and memes than they do about your Heather Mallet column. And I would rather see a million cat memes and gifs than a Heather Mallet column. In fact, if I never see a Heather Mallet column until the day I die, it will be too soon. But the thing is, they're trying to basically integrate government regulation and big tech. And this is going to be an unholy alliance when you look at other things the government has tried to do along this same vein. One of the big ones is trying to make social media companies enforce government's definition of hate speech and harmful speech. Now, no one is going to get up and say, well, I actually, I like hate speech. And, you know, by, by George, I think we need to defend hate speech. But the problem always comes when you look at what the government's definition of it is. And if the government censors you in some way, you have recourse, you have court, you have a way to fight that. What if that censorship is happening because government has threatened social media companies with a penalty if those social media companies don't censor your own content? Well, then all of a sudden, uh, Facebook or Twitter is making this decision about what you post. They're doing it because of the government, but your issue is not with the government, it's with them. And you have this very murky territory here in which big tech companies have become the government's enforcers based on a very itself murky definition of what you're allowed to say online. And the fact that more people aren't aware that this is happening and aware that the government is pushing this the fact that more people aren't up in arms about that is, I think, a tremendous shame. There's been so much emphasis on Bill C-11, which, don't get me wrong, is a very important bill, and I think one that needs to be opposed. But they're not talking about all these other areas where government is trying to, and I think largely succeeding, at ingratiating itself in just what happens on the internet and what these big tech companies do. And you have to look at all of these things in aggregate. The government lowering the threshold for what hate speech is, the government doing all of this to then give itself the power to deputize social media companies to enforce that definition and threatening them with fines if they don't. And I think it's so paramount to go back to the Elon Musk point that Elon Musk takes a stand against this. I mean, Canada may be a very insignificant player in the grand scheme of things. And Twitter, I think, shut down its whole Canadian operation, which I think only had a handful of people. But the point is that Canada is not a key market for Twitter. So this may not be on his radar. 
Uh, Canada Proud a few weeks ago had actually tweeted Elon Musk and asked him if uh, he was going to oppose Bill C-11, I think it was, and he had said it was the first time he had heard of it. So I hope in that uh, interceding time he has been informed of it by people on his team or maybe Canada Proud has sent him the whole memo or maybe he's even been reading True North's reports. Who knows? But I think it's so important that Elon Musk realizes if this commitment to free speech that he's espousing is something he believes authentically, and I believe it is, I hope he looks at what the Canadian government is doing and what other governments around the world are also going to be doing. The UK is doing its own version of this and takes a stand against it and realizes that the only thing worse than government censorship or big tech censorship is this weird hybrid where it's government-empowered but big tech-enforced censorship. And we'll obviously talk more about that, but it's a tremendous opportunity for Elon Musk. And it doesn't take away from the fight we have as Canadians on our hands, but I think it is important for these companies to say, no, we are not devoting our resources to complying with this Canadian law. And if the Canadian government wants to go up against Twitter, I think Twitter's GDP is probably greater than that of Canada. Not exactly, but certainly greater than that of some smaller countries. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the future. I want to turn to some cost of living issues, which are very much affecting Canadians. We spoke about inflation a fair bit last week, and I know we'll have a a bit of a more in-depth look at this in a couple of weeks with Franco Terrazano of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. But I think one of the big things that it's important to identify here is that for most Canadians who are grappling with inflation, there isn't just one instant snap of the finger solution. There are a number of inputs here. There's general inflation, supply chain issues. There are the increases to the carbon tax. And one that doesn't often get discussed, but I think is important here, is the increases to payroll taxes, which if you're talking about uh, thousands of dollars a year that Canadians are spending more on groceries and taxes, a few hundred a year in payroll taxes is quite significant. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business is calling on the federal government to pause the planned increase of EI and CPP premiums, which will uh, take about $305 away from the average Canadian worker next year. Uh, Dan Kelly, president of the CFIB, joins me now. Uh, Dan, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Do we have you there, Dan? I, I, I can hear you. Hope you can hear okay, me. Okay, perfect. Sorry, we had a, a little bit of a, a technical issue there. Let, let's talk about what this is first off. These premiums go up every year, but we're also talking about a year that isn't exactly business as usual economically for Canadian families. No, I mean, typically there is a, uh, an increase in the maximum amount that we can pay uh, CPP on, and EI on, uh, but the rate generally has not uh, risen. In fact, for two years, the federal government froze the employment insurance rates because they recognized the economy was in rough shape. Canadians were struggling through the pandemic, and so they kept those rates frozen. Uh, now they've removed that cap on EI, and they're in the process of raising CPP rates significantly over a seven-year period. Those two things combined are going to raise uh, employees' payroll taxes by by over 6% uh, this year. Uh, As you said, about a $305 increase, uh, up to a $305 increase for the employee, $325 increase for the employer. So your payroll on January 1 for most working Canadians will drop. That's in the face of an environment where we're all dealing with the inflationary pressures on everything that we buy. 
Uh, we're seeing EICPP premiums rise. And then as, as you noted, later in the spring, in most provinces, a, 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 an increase in the carbon tax, as well as an increase in liquor taxes. Do you recall in the last couple of years when the government put this freeze in, when that decision was made? What I mean by that basically is, are we past that point where the government could easily do something about this? Look, the government could could even now announce a freeze or retroactively uh, take out the increase. Uh, there are ways to do that. In fact, in 2015 and 2016, uh, the Liberals, just as they took power, put a two-year freeze on a two-year reduction plan for small businesses on their share of the EI bill. Uh, that could happen as soon as budget 2023. So it's not too late. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're a couple of weeks away from January 1 uh, and rates are expected to rise. They did increase them. The Liberals did increase EI, uh, sorry, did increase Canada pension plan premiums in both COVID years, in 2021 and 2022, they're doing it again this year, despite the fact we're all dealing with wicked inflation levels. You know, when you take 300 bucks out of somebody's take-home income, that's, you know, that's a, a round or two of groceries for, for, for many Canadian families at a time when Canadians are really struggling. The benefits for CPP, the future benefits, they're gonna be, that, that increase is gonna be phased in over the next 40 years. So putting a one-year pause in place, we don't think is too tall an order. Uh, unfortunately, the government has ignored these calls and is, is moving ahead. Now, if you're self-employed, you're getting hit on both ends of this, aren't you? The employer and the employee side? Uh, you don't have to pay, face EI premiums, but on Canada Pension Plan, you pay the, both the share as the employee and you pay the share as the employer on self-employment income. So you could have hundreds and hundreds of dollars of, of increased Canada Pension Plan premiums. And the self-employed really were huge losers out of COVID. For the business, of course, this is adding additional pressure. I mean, you, we talk about the inflationary pressures on average Canadians. For business owners, they're seeing that pressure on every line of their budget. Uh, and of course, uh, with rising taxes, these payroll taxes, uh, that obviously saps their ability to provide raises for their employees to deal with the inflationary pressure that they're facing. So it's a pretty vicious circle right now. I know that there's this vision that I don't even know if it's an intentional one, but this approach of the business owner as being the miserly one that doesn't want to give their employees benefits. And, and you know, any small business owner I've ever spoken to would love to pay their employees a lot more, but sometimes they look at their balance sheet and, and that money just isn't there. So when you're talking about, you know, a few hundred dollars per employee, if you've got 10 employees, that $3,000 is not insignificant on some small businesses, is it? It's not at all. And, and look, I mean, we have to also put the context of, of what's happening right now. Sure, the COVID restrictions are behind us, but if you can believe it, only half of small businesses say that they are back to 2019 levels of sales. For, for many, they're not seeing customers return in the volume that they did pre-pandemic. On top of that, just to get through the restrictions of the last two years, the average small firm has taken on $110,000 in debt. Uh, that's how much they now owe exposed to higher interest rates that they're having to, to, to make good on. Uh, and they're seeing these cost pressures. So lower sales, more debt at higher interest rates and huge cost increases. This is not the, the boom times that people were predicting coming out of, the, coming out of COVID uh, that, 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 that many, of the, many of the articles were breathlessly talking about. Sadly, for many small businesses, these remain pretty bleak times. Small business optimism, if you can believe it, 
is actually fairly close to the to the low levels it was at the beginning of the pandemic. That's how bad it is for small businesses. And yet the federal government feels like this is a great time to jack up taxes. Yeah, I mean, there's always been that divide uh, that people have seen between the financial economy and the real economy, between uh, the picture of the economy that you might see looking at the stock market, although not always, and, and what you see when you look on the ground. And again, a lot of these, a lot of people have made billions in the pandemic, but for a lot of small business owners, they haven't seen that. They haven't seen that, you know, incredible financial success story that Amazon has. No, well, look, restrictions really hit independent businesses particularly hard, especially in retail, hospitality, the service sector, arts and entertainment, travel and tourism. These were the sectors that were most directly affected by COVID restrictions. They took it on the chin uh, to try to get through. Yes, there were government support programs in place, but our data shows that only about one third of the cost to business was covered by COVID subsidies. Two thirds was borne by the business itself. Uh, this is deeply unfair at, at this stage. And business owners are saying, look, give us a bit of a breather here before you start to return to, to, uh, to raising taxes. You add to that the carbon tax increase that we're expecting in, in April. Uh, and, and for small businesses, that's especially deadly. Small firms don't qualify for any of the rebates that supposedly are there for consumers. Uh, they basically are just payers of, of the carbon tax itself. Liquor tax increases affect hospitality uh, and, and some in the retail sector. Um, we need to make sure that Canadians have dollars to spend in businesses. We're not doing a lot to, to help them. I know that you have obviously called first and foremost for a freeze on these increases. Another idea is putting forward a refundable tax credit. And you mentioned 2015, 2016 on that. The freeze would be, in your view, the ideal response, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Look, if, if our first choice is to put the brakes on the increase that is expected for January 1. Uh, I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen only two weeks away from uh, from the new year. Uh, but but you know that would be the the best course of action for the federal government to take but there are ways even after that to uh, to try to offset these costs even if they're not going to offset them for average canadians trying to to remove some of the payroll burden on canadian employers would be helpful and there are ways through through a mix of credits tax reductions and other ways that the federal government can come to the aid of of small and medium-sized firms we've got all sorts of pressures right now and and we need to get a few of them taken off our our list have you found that Christian Freeland, the finance minister, actually hears you out when you've brought these concerns historically, or do you find that the government is just completely detached from the reality of what small business owners are facing? Well, look, I've been doing this a long time, uh, and uh, when the Liberals took office, uh, there was no secret that uh, that the finance minister, Bill Borneau, did not listen one bit to uh, the uh, concerns of small business owners, and that's when the CPP increase plan was was first hatched. Uh, it was negotiated, and I will say, um, uh, criticism of if the federal government alone does not set CPP rates. Many provincial governments, including conservative provincial governments, supported the increase in the Canada Pension Plan. We're trying to convince some of those same governments to put pause, uh, to press pause. Um, when, when, when the Deputy Prime Minister, when Christy Friedland took the reins in finance, she did listen. Uh, to many of our requests over the course of the pandemic, uh, some of the work that we did uh, to try to make sure that there were effective uh, subsidy programs in place for small business. But that remains incomplete. And, and right now, what businesses need is a little bit of relief. Uh, there was in the fall economic statement a plan to reduce credit card processing fees. That's good news. 
Uh, I'm hoping to be speaking to her before the holidays in the next couple of days, and we'll be putting this uh, this request to her once again to see if small firms can can get at least some relief from the massive pressures that that auto is imposing right now. I wasn't going to go there, but since you mentioned credit card processing fees, I don't know if a lot of consumers realize how disruptive those are to businesses. Oh, gosh. You know, the average consumer, of course, thinks that the credit card industry is funded through the annual fee that they might pay to get a premium card that, or is funded by the interest that they might pay if they carry a balance on their credit card. What they don't know, uh, for the most part, is that every time that card is swiped, or chipped, the merchant pays a fee somewhere in the range of one and a half to two and a half percent of the sale for the courtesy of making that transaction happen. That's somewhere in the range of five to ten billion dollars a year that Canadians pay that is embedded in the prices of everything that we buy. So, and those fees, sadly, in Canada are among the highest in the world. Um, so it is good that the government has talked about finding ways to lower the pressure of these fees on average Canadians. Um, uh, we're working to make sure that that actually happens, putting some ideas forward uh, to, to government, to, to Visa, to MasterCard. Uh, but these, these, the pressures are, are there. The rewards that, that, you know, your free trip to Florida that you may never get, um, that's funded by consumers that are paying with cash, paying with debit. So it's actually in many ways a wealth transfer from low-income Canadians that pay with cash and debit to wealthier Canadians that have one of these premium credit cards uh, that's something that I think very few understand. Yeah, and I, I'm guilty of it as well, because don't get me wrong, I've got credit cards that, you know, give me Aeroplan points, and I, I use those things, but it, it's not coming out, like, it's, you, you know it's not being conjured out of thin air. Someone is paying for that. You got it. It's the merchant, uh, ultimately, and then that gets passed back to the consumer. So uh, we think that a fair system would be to, to keep these fees low, uh, as is the case in many other countries of the world. The reward schemes are still there, uh, but it's, it's unfair that the merchant has to pay for the reward schemes, the customer loyalty schemes that really do reward the banks uh, as, uh, and, and the customers of the banks in the end. That's not the way that this is supposed to work. All right. So here's, I guess, where we get down to the action item here. We're looking at this uh, increase going in January 1st. And, and I think you mentioned earlier that technically there are options after January 1st, but this is really the crunch time if there's going to be a, a freeze most likely on these uh, increases in premiums, correct? You got it. And we have a petition on our website right now directed at the federal government and provinces uh, to press pause on the EI and CPP premium increases that are expected on or that are planned for January 1st. Uh, again, I think, you know, one of my observations about Canadians is we actually don't mind paying higher taxes. We actually don't mind fees. We just don't want to know about it. And that's the <laughs> problem with CPP and EI. Because it comes off our paychecks, most people, it flies right under their radar. And then they realize in January, hey, I'm a little bit poor, not drawing the connection, sadly, uh, between the policies that the government's putting in place and, and their bottom line. All right. And, and yeah, certainly I know a lot of, I get a lot of emails from people who are self-employed. You'll certainly see uh, both ends of that as well. Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, thanks very much. And that petition is on the CFIB website. So uh, have a good one, Dan. Merry Christmas to you. To you too. Thanks so much. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. 
Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Thank you very much. I said earlier in the show, I, I want to talk a little bit about Mississauga Lakeshore. And I assure you, if you do not live in Mississauga Lakeshore, you're like, why on earth do we have to talk about a by-election in a riding in which I do not live? And there is a good reason for it, because by-elections tend to be presented as though they have a national character to them. And there's some reason why this is probably accurate to some extent. You saw in the course of the by-election, MPs from all over the country, from as far away as as BC and Alberta were knocking on doors in this riding in the greater Toronto area for the Liberal or for the Conservative or for the uh, the NDP. And the thing that was happening here is that the media was trying to present this narrative as though uh, this was going to be the real test of Pierre Polyev's leadership. If the Conservatives failed to win in Mississauga Lakeshore, then Pierre Polyev was a failure as a leader and it's done and he's going to lose the next election. And I was never quite convinced of that. And it was certainly his first electoral test. I mean, it's by definition the first election that has taken place since Pierre Polyev became the conservative leader. But it's also a riding that has elected a conservative member of parliament in recent history once. And that was Stella Ambler in 2011 when the conservatives had a national majority and did very well in ridings that they have only done well in in that same election, that very election in recent memory. So I think expectations were low and the conservatives knew it and the conservatives acted that way. I think the conservatives saw the writing was on the wall. They knew they weren't going to win. They were up against a star liberal. Now, how on earth the finance minister for Kathleen Wynne in Ontario is not in and of itself something that makes you a pariah, I don't know. But he was a star candidate. And the conservatives ran a guy who, by all accounts, is a, a nice enough guy, a, a police officer named Ron Chinzer. But the fact that I had to look down on my screen before I said Ron Chinzer, I think, is probably an example of the fact that he didn't have the star power that Charles Souza did, such as it is. And all of that was, I think, why the conservatives were like, we're just going to run and we're going to send some MPs there to knock on doors. But Pierre Polyev was not knocking on doors. He wasn't thumping his chest saying, this is our guy, we're going to win. He was getting attacked yesterday for not having tweeted about the by-election. And then eventually in the afternoon, uh, like got around to tweeting that there was a by-election going on. He sent out a blast email to conservative members or donors, I don't know which one it was, yesterday, fundraising for Peter McKay's leadership debt. So I think it's safe to say that when Peter McKay's leadership debt is more of a priority than the by-election that the conservatives don't actually care. Maybe Peter McKay should have run for the by-election in Mississauga Lakeshore and he could have lost the election and paid off his leadership debt all in one fell swoop. But the conservatives were not expecting to win. Now, I still think that there is a bit of a problem here if you look at the numbers. This was a low turnout election, as by-elections often are, but Charles Souza won with 51% of the vote. 51% of the vote. The Conservatives should at least be in the wheelhouse, but only got 37% of the vote. The NDP just completely collapsed. They were under 5%. The Green Party was an afterthought. The PPC got 1.2%, which is not at all uh, anything to be proud about. So the only people that really showed up were people that were saying, yeah, I guess I'm okay just voting for the Liberals. So the makeup in the House of Commons stays the same as it was before Sven Spengeman resigned the seat to go work 
work at the UN, which is, I think, like the uh, number one off-ramp for a liberal member of parliament in Trudeau's government. So does it mean anything? I think it means something in the sense of what the conservatives need to do. Because as Stephen Harper showed in 2011, it is possible to win a majority without Quebec. But you need to then have the so-called Greater Toronto Area in your corner. If you don't have the Greater Toronto Area, you've got to get Quebec. But this is just a basic numbers game. You cannot win a majority government without getting one or the other. So what's your plan, Pierre Polyev? If you want to be the guy that's going to command a conservative majority which is the only real way to have a conservative government at this point, you've got to be able to show that you're at least in the ballpark. And I, I do think the conservatives need to answer for why they didn't contest it. Was it just to save face? Did they not campaign aggressively because they didn't want it to be able to blow up? And, and, and if he lost when Pierre Polyev had been really invested, that would have looked worse than losing when Pierre Polyev just forgot there was a by-election? I don't know. I don't know what the strategy was. Maybe it was just that they're all getting their ducks in a row and he's still just finding out where the furniture is going to go in his office in on Parliament Hill. But it's not exactly a ringing vote of confidence for conservatives that know that's the area where they need to do well. So I'm not going to say that it is a failure in the sense of what Andrew Coyne and Robert Benzie and all of these other mainstream media types are saying, but I am going to say that it raises some questions, some questions that the conservatives need to have answers for because it is just a numbers game. And you can talk about how Aaron O'Toole just completely hinged all of his ambitions on the idea of winning Quebec and the GTA and didn't. But he ultimately did better in this riding in 2021 than Pierre Polyev did in the by-election. And sure, recognize that by-elections are different, low voter turnout, fine. But if there was not enough of an incentive for people to come out and vote for someone other than Trudeau's candidate, why was that? What is it the Conservatives need to do better to do well there? And I mean, the Liberals just think this is like a complete win across the board. Just take a look at this clip from today in question period. Now, I haven't actually seen the clip. I've only seen a, a little bit of a preview of it that was uh, circulating in the transcript. So uh, we get to enjoy this together. But this is Justin Trudeau using the by-election win as like the trump card on criticism for his minister violating ethics rules. In confidence to bad ethics, uh, we have another Liberal minister found guilty of violating the Ethics Act, this time for giving a $23,000 con $23, contract Shame. to one of her best friends at a company called Pomp and Circumstances. And um, it reminds us of the Prime Minister giving a half billion dollars to an organization called the We Charity that gave his family a half million dollars. So, Mr. Speaker, will this minister be held accountable and will she be required to pay back the $23,000 in improper contracting that she gave out? The right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, in this House there's a lot of debate and back and forth, but uh, every now and then there's an opportunity for Canadians to weigh in directly on what's going on in federal politics. And yesterday, the residents of Mississauga Lakeshore had a choice. They could choose between the Conservative Party's politics of division and reckless proposals that included recommending you opt out of inflation by investing in crypto, or our government's approach of being there for Canadians every step of the way and putting more money back in their pockets. Well, Mr. Speaker, the people of Mississauga Lakeshore have spoken and elected a Liberal Member of Parliament.
okay. I, I just want to try to recapture or recap this for you. Mr. Speaker, a liberal minister was paying her friend tens of thousands of dollars. The conflict of interest and ethics commissioner has found this to be wrong. How do you answer for this? Well, how about those Mississauga Lakeshore results? And that gets applause. Okay. This is what this is what we're doing. So you win a by-election in Mississauga Lakeshore, and it actually doesn't matter if you break federal ethics laws, which is good. That must be the secret. Justin Trudeau can uh, have all the vacations with the Agacon he wants as long as he keeps winning in Mississauga Lakeshore. Uh, we've got to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. We will be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.